0: All right, we are on episode three of Agenda 23. We've got me and John here, and today we have our very special guest, also John, John Russell. Super excited to have him on the show. Thank you so much for being here, John.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to do it.
0: We're really excited to hear from you today. And just a little bit about John. He was a market produce farmer on 21 Acres for seven seasons. Really excited to ask you about that. And his latest involvement was serving as a campaign director for RuralVote.org, a progressive super PAC, where he oversaw a quarter million dollar campaign in five Midwest battleground states to promote the Biden-Harris ticket in rural swing counties for the 2020 general election. And previously, John served as a rural outreach coordinator for the Elizabeth Warren primary campaign in Iowa and Ohio. Yeah, we have a lot of stuff to talk about today. I guess we'd love to start with your latest involvement with ruralvote.org. Can you tell us just a bit about that? For people who might not know what a, a PAC or a super PAC is, maybe just break that down into some simple terms. And yeah, we'd love to hear about your experience there.
1: Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, just was, it's been a really wild ride for everybody involved in the election and listening to the the, the involvement <laughs> took me back through uh, through things. but. Um, Ruralvote.org was um, an advocacy organization. It's part of a a family of groups that advocate for rural America and for progressive policies. Uh, Matt Hildreth is a really good person for anybody interested in that area. Um, He put together uh, the Super PAC and um, other organizations that do advocacy for for rural communities. So as as part of... um, promoting Biden-Harris in in, uh, uh, Great Lakes battleground states, and especially counties that voted twice for Obama and then went for Trump. Uh, We had a whole strategy at ruralvote.org to engage uh, rural communities that, uh, unfortunately, are are oftentimes written off by our own party. So there's um, a lot of progressive thought uh, alive and well in rural communities and we wanted to go to those activists on the ground who have been keeping the flame alive uh regardless of who's on the ground in, in what election cycle um tap them into the system and and try to produce a win and we're glad that uh we have an administration to at least work with now
2: john i met you when you were working with the elizabeth warren campaign but i'm you know our program is about preparing for the 2023 farm bill and trying to work out an agenda for that. I was wondering if you might fill us in a little bit on what you see in the Biden-Harris farm program platform that they put forward in their campaign and, and what you see about them following through on the issues that are there and maybe even possibility of a more progressive agenda for farm bill in the future.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, speaking as a, a, a person who was really excited about the Warren campaign and really glad um for the agenda that she put together, um, I am glad that we have uh, administration an administration to work with. Um, I think there were, you know, more exciting choices than uh, Tom Vilsack to end up as agricultural secretary, but I don't think that's necessarily that you know. Um, there there there's something to work with there, you know, speaking as as a person who was on the Warren campaign, but what I would hope from their administration is that they are open to um the kind of things that this podcast is frequently talking about, the kind of things that a lot of rural activists are putting together um, to bring to them and, and elevate. and you know as we're thinking of of a new farm bill, I think there's good opportunities to recognize just how much agriculture in rural communities has changed since we made the farm bill. You know, I think, um, farming has gone, has gone down and has been pushed down a really corporate path in a really consolidated path. And I think when we talk about the farm bill and, um, those kind of programs, it's often just pigeonholed as, as this one narrow slice of rural America. It's talking about just farmers exclusively, but rural America is so much more than just farmers. And I hope to see that reflected in the new version of the farm bill. And what makes me hopeful is that we have an administration that at least is open to that idea. Good.
0: One thing that struck me just from some pieces I was reading about you was Growing up in a conservative area, you're able, you're willing to have these really hard face-to-face conversations with people. And I'm just curious kind of how that went on the Warren campaign and your experience beyond what do you think works? For for me, I'm from Hawaii. I went to Berkeley. I'm almost jealous that you've had so much experience and time to to talk with people who disagree with you. I, I really think more people need that. And so I would love to hear kind of what works when you engage with people who don't necessarily agree with you. And just this idea also of agriculture going in this very corporate direction. I mean, I think a lot of people can agree. On the fact that corporations are really damaging and so was that ever able to be a piece that you can get people to agree on that maybe didn't agree with you on different things
1: absolutely i mean my job on the warren campaign was to go out into counties in iowa that voted for donald trump with more than 70 percent of the vote and you know our, our thought was that you know just politically to to uh what you need to do is not outright win a lot of these places you need to lose less and you need to do better and put together a little bit better margins across a lot of rural counties. And for us, uh, it, it wasn't that, uh, complicated a strategy. We figured if you show up, there is respect from people in communities for anybody that comes there shows up and listens. Uh, so that's what we tried to do on the campaign. And that was met with a great response, even in very conservative areas. And then, uh, you know, being the Warren campaign, the second part of that was to show up with a plan. She's, of course, the candidate of plans. Um, But really, those plans were formulated. And this is why Iowa was, you know, so special to me. And so um, such an exciting thing to be involved with. The plans for especially for agriculture were made by traveling around to communities in Iowa, and listening to the problems there and incorporating those into the solutions. So a lot of our our rural plans focused on what we were hearing from folks in in rural Iowa communities, which was for decades, the line in agriculture was that you had to get big or get out. And um, that was coming um, from, you know, corporate suppliers. It was coming from uh, policy think tanks. It was coming from administrations forcing people to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But then, years down the road, folks are looking around at the system that we built and say, and asking, who is this really working for? And the answer was never it, our communities. You know, it, it was, we created this system that is uh, only really working for the large companies that set it up. So we heard that we incorporated it into our plans. We showed up uh, with those plans uh, to talk about them. And uh, you might think that uh, representing Elizabeth Warren in very, very conservative counties would be a tough thing to do, but not when you show up, not when you listen, not when you can uh, when when people see that you are clearly fighting uh, for their communities and their interests so it, it was nothing but good re- things to report from that experience
2: John, I wonder if you have some insights on how you might mount a campaign to kind of separate the, the people that are really benefiting from this corporate agriculture and by and large benefiting from the farm bill because that's where the vast majority of the funds in the farm bill, at least the farming part of it, goes to what, 10% of the largest farmers. And if you look at if you look at the percentage of farmers of people that live in rural communities, it's something like 10% of the people that live in rural communities are farmers. And so if you get down to the people that are really benefiting from current farm programs and benefiting from the corporate agriculture, you're about 10% of that 10%, you know, (laughs) you're you're down to a pretty small fraction of the total uh, rural community as a whole. You're uh, really a pretty small percentage of all the farmers as a whole. I contend that most of the people that are classified by farmers of USDA are not helped by the Farm Bill, they're damaged by the fact that the Farm Bill allocates the funds to the people that are consistently driving them out of business or causing them not to be able to make any money. Is there a political strategy for kind of getting across to the people that don't benefit that when you kind of vote the Farm Bureau line here, or you vote this propaganda that says, if you uh, question the Farm Bill, if you question corporate agriculture, it's going to destroy the rural economy, it's going to destroy the rural community. It's not. What's destroying the rural community and the rural economy is the support for this corporate agriculture that's supported by the Farm Bill. How do we get that message across so that we can communicate with those people? I think the let's say the 50% of the farmers that benefit practically, not not at all, I think it's only 40% of the farmers that get any of the benefits. How do we get the message across that, hey, you need to vote for a change in the farm bill and you need to start questioning what you're being told about being good for corporate agriculture is good for rural communities. Is there a way to mount a campaign so we could get that message across?
1: Well, yeah, I want to underscore everything you said. I, I, I agree with that analysis of it. And like most things in um, in our economy, unfortunately, um, with the Farm Bill, uh, most of the benefit is going to a handful of people that control the system from the top. That's the, that's the problem in, in the Farm Bill and with the rest of our economy. But I think when you lay it out ex- exactly as you did to folks who have a stake in this, you start to see a lot of heads nodding in the room. That's what we would do on our listening tours for the Warren campaign, is point out that the system that we have is really only benefiting a couple people at the very tippy top. Um, I think folks feel that every day um, in rural communities. The folks that, you know, if you are a farmer and you're one of the last ones holding on to uh, um, a model of agriculture that's been squeezed out over years and years. If you're in that middle, where you're not, you're not quite big, and 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 you don't quite have the economies of scale to really benefit from these policies, but you're not small either, if you're barely hanging on, you feel in very real terms what you just said. So I think a campaign to address it starts with um, you know, accountability and pointing that out. And then I think we should point to a new uh, vision of what the Farm Bill and what agriculture and rural policy could be. And that should line up more with the situation on the ground today Um, than all of the policies that we currently have on the books that were made at a time when rural America doesn't look anything like it does today. So in in that vision, I would say, uh, you know, there are a couple of thinkers here that I really love. I mean, uh, you're one of them, John, but uh, I think there's Austin Freerick is a person who who writes on this a lot and he um, brings into... Uh, brings consolidation and antitrust into the conversation. And I think that needs to be a big part of uh, breaking up the handful of companies that are really disproportionately benefiting and controlling and freezing out um, a lot of the new business models that could come up if there was less consolidation. Um, So if we address this aggressively through antitrust on the one hand, and then on the other, we expanded... Uh, policy from the current narrow view of farming and agriculture to a broader view view of rural prosperity this is an idea that matt hildreth and the rural organizing community is is always advocating as well as many other activists in this space i think uh that's why you know agenda 23 and in the focus on the new farm bill presents us that opportunity to say rural america is more than just farmers and we need to take into account all of the community development aspects that, 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 that make a community a nice place to live, those need to be a part of the new Farm Bill and of um, agriculture policy. And I think that makes for a compelling campaign.
0: Right, it's like how the Green New Deal, it's about jobs, it's about healthcare, it's about a livable wage because we can't accomplish solving climate change without sort of accomplishing all these other things too. So for better or for worse, the farm bill is, it's important. It it also is kind of like what you said, you have to almost scrap all of these existing policies that we've had because they no longer work for the situation. And at the same time, the farm bill is a great place to start because it is so all encompassing. And it is the biggest piece of food and ag legislation that we have, but it almost feels hard to kind of radicalize it because there are, there is so much embedded in it. I don't know if you have a vision for how we can do that.
1: Yeah, some of the, you know, it's such a big um, bill as you mentioned, but I think um, there are kind of two pushes that need to to happen. One is an an expansion uh, of the the scope of the farm bill to uh, focus on community building aspects rather than just farm policy. I think that'd be a good direction to go in. But then uh, there are other things laying in the farm bill that can help um, get us away from a system that's really just serving food, giant food corporations, and towards a system um, that favors uh, small business, uh, small and regional size farms, um, participate, participants in a regional economy rather than these um, massive food exporting models that have been pushed for so long. So those kind of things in the Farm Bill, to me, um, coming out of Iowa, the the conservation stewardship program, right? A Tom Harkin idea uh, that's part of the commodity, excuse me, the conservation title of the Farm Bill. This concept is paying farmers for conservation on working lands. And to me, that's just a no-brainer because we can get uh, we can develop a new income stream to farmers and to landholders um, for conserving natural resources in a way that means clean water um, for people not only in rural America but you know we're all eaters we're all breathers we're all drinkers right we have a stake Uh, folks living in a city have a stake in what happens out in rural America So when you take a program existing like the CSP and you pay farmers to conserve our natural resources as part of their business model, it's a win for everybody. Um, So I think focusing on areas like that um, rather than the parts of the farm bill that are currently just uh, pushing people to overproduce and lowering the price and uh, thus increasing the bottom line of these companies and making the problem worse. when we can shift away from that and towards things that are already there in the farm bill, that's a, that's a win in my book, too.
2: McKinsey and I were with a group that put together a proposal saying, OK, let's transition from the current kind of crop insurance, revenue insurance program that focuses on a specific commodity to an income insurance for farmers, basically, that would follow through using the conservation stewardship program as a, as a model, saying put together a whole farm plan that would take you over time to a regenerative farming system. You know, one of the roles of USDA could be the research and outreach on, okay, how do you develop regenerative farming systems and what does that look like? But using that existing program, but then having a transition period where you could transition funds from the current commodity program to fund this transition program that was built on the CSP. There's also a whole farm risk insurance program, but it insures revenue. And what we're talking about is insuring the net farm revenue or the family farm revenue. And you talked about where the farm bill began, the initial farm bill. And when you talk about parity prices, the initial parity prices were calculated so as to provide farm families an income at parity with or on par with non-farm families. And they picked this 19... 1914 period, because that was the period whenever farm families made about as much as as non-farm families. And so it was initially about families. And they said, okay rather than just paying to the family, let's just set prices that level. And if you look at the parity index it's still calculated, it has the consumer price index, because an important part of that was the cost of living on the farm. And then they calculated the price that would give you a revenue that would more than cover the cost of living on the farm. And give them an income. So what we're talking about is combining those two basic programs that are there, but reorienting them in a way. And then when you were talking a while ago, I thought, and Mackenzie asked this question, what if, what if we proposed a, a pilot program of this nature, rather than just an abrupt change, what, what if we promoted a pilot program that would make this an alternative like the conservation stewardship program was, but this would be an alternative to the existing crop insurance in revenue insurance and CSP program. And then if it really worked, then that could be the alternative vision that could lead to a broader transformation in farm policy in general. Is that something that would be more saleable uh, than just proposing a whole broad agenda?
1: I absolutely think so. I mean, that's, you know, that is, um, you just laid out the roadmap for, um, a system in rural America that is going to, uh, you know kind of do a 180 away from um, most of the benefits going to a small uh, group of people who are you know in the uh, these these large food companies that are reaping the benefits of our public policy and you're sketching the path towards a system that uh, includes a lot more stakeholders in rural America and I think any any system that goes that way is going to be um,
2: easy to sell on the campaign trail which is what we ultimately have to do. If if it worked in the the farm community in an area also, you could say, okay, let's just do this as a a rural economic development program. Let's support small businesses. Let's support entrepreneurs in this way, whatever we want to see in the future then the taxpayer basically will absorb the risk of that transition. What we're doing now is absorbing the risk that's inherent in this large scale specialized industrial operation. These big farms are risky just like big banks and we bail them out just like we bail out big banks. So why not absorb the risk of transitioning not only family farms, but transition rural communities back to something that's more economically viable and socially responsible.
1: Absolutely, and to that point too, you know another another dynamic rural communities are are faced with it, it's it's privatized profits for all the uh, you know capos and hog companies and all the big ag industrial players, and then socialized risk. You know there's uh, uh, the the manure management systems for a lot of these concentrated feeding operations are just. Uh, you know, if you had a city producing that much waste, there would be all kinds of regulations to make sure that we're dealing with this in a way that's not gonna affect water and, and negatively affect the environment, but we subsidize them with none of that regulation at all. But that cost is, is borne by rural communities and, and by, uh, you know, the reality of dead zones in the Gulf and er- everything else.
0: A huge part of the, the plan that John Eicher just laid out Was paying farmers to adopt more practices like crop rotation, low and no-till, composting, intercropping, all those sorts of things, and support them while they're going through that transition. I'm just going to go on a limb here and say that I'm guessing it was rare to have an actual farmer like you who was involved in food and ag policy on the campaign trail. Um, Is that true?
1: Well, that was, you know, I, I don't know how rare it is for other campaigns, but I will say um, it felt special that a campaign uh, made a spot for a person. Um, and you know, this just this this wasn't just in the in the rural policy department. The Warren campaign. Uh, one of the reasons I really liked it is because she made a point of hiring people with lived experience to inform policy areas and to go out and engage communities. Uh, that was certainly true for the rural position, and it was one of the reasons I was excited to. To join. And I think it should be part of any campaign that's trying to um, engage any community really effectively.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking you can definitely understand where farmers and in general, people in rural America are coming from with your experience of actually being a farmer. Is there any stories or anything you remember talking to people who sort of had to plant fence row to fence row but didn't want to do that or had to spray chemicals because they were sort of caught in this? treadmill or wanted to farm more sustainably or regeneratively or whatever we want to call it but felt sort of trapped
1: oh man yeah that i'm glad you asked that question and you know we went out into all of these counties and held listening tours and we would um kind of open up the floor to anybody who showed up in uh you know where wherever it was that we were and i do remember one person um just recounted this story of uh, recognizing a neighbor's pickup truck with a grain cart behind it. And it was in the middle of uh, in the middle of the winter. And this, uh, this person uh, was, was on the way to the elevator and, but was pulled over on the side of the road. And then the neighbor went to check up on him and the person was just sitting there and, and sobbing. This is a story that was recounted to me and, uh the, the the moral of the story why, why that person was uh you know pulled over a sudden by the side of the road is they worked very very hard and were taking a product to market that they were going to get less than what they put into it for you know and that is uh not the sad thing about that is it's not an uncommon story that you hear right and it really just underscores the point that the system that we have currently despite what it might say uh through pr campaigns or slogans like feed the world or anything like that it's really not working we have to ask who it's working for and um there aren't a lot of uh of uh, people and organizations that it really is benefiting and we we all deserve a better system than that and that was that was a a story that really sticks with me even today to underscore that point
2: so the question is how do how do we get that point across to to more people. There's this this idea that this farm bill and porting farm prices, you have very little resistance that I heard of this year whenever or in the past year, when almost every few months there was a new program for farmers of some sort. Last year, if I recall, something like 40, 47, between 46 and 47 billion dollars in direct payments went out last year, in addition to the crop insurance programs and that sort of thing. I figured that out. And that's about $50,000 a farm that are actually getting payments. But you heard very little complaining about that. Why is that? That there seemed to be general support. Well, we've got to support the farmers. We've got to support these programs. We've got to come up with this money. Whereas we have a hard time coming up with money for poor people that are fighting COVID or out of work because the restaurants are closed or places like that, or hotels are closed, or whatever, the low-income workers, but we tend to support these programs for these large farm operations. How do we get the story across that this is where the money's going, not to the people that really need it, not to the farmers that need it, not to people in rural communities?
1: Yeah, you know, I just want to point out, too, that that it's a sum, just to put it in context, it's a sum that's larger than the auto bailout. Um, You know, what we spent just in one year, in the Trump administration, bail, bailing out farmers, um, but I do think it gets back to you know the, these even these farmers that received a lot of these payments, uh, they'll come to you and say that we, we don't want forty percent of our income to come from the government as it did, um, in a, in a single year, and uh, you know even a lot of the folks who may not be uh, progressive voters are are unhappy with the with the current situation that. Um, would even put them in a scenario where they do get 40% of their money from the government. So I think when, uh, you know, it comes down to now we have an administration that is at least open to reform and is talking um, about ways that we can change uh, USDA in the Farm Bill. And uh, for everybody who wants to see that system turn turn into something different, I think uh, we have an opportunity to lift up some of those ideas, put them in front of the administration and advocate for them. And, uh, you know, for me, that gets back to the the conservation title of the Farm Bill to uh, expanding it with ideas like postal banking and a lot of the uh, marker legislation that is out there for uh reforms that can help rural communities uh, we have these assets in every corner of rural America we, you know we have schools in every uh, you know in every zip code that, that we would be talking about we have post office in every community um, that are sitting there that could uh, realize unused potential and I think those things while they're not part of the farm bill conversation right now they should be a part of this larger focus on how do we uh, make rural communities places that you know young people aren't leaving they're thinking about coming back to because they have all of the assets necessary for for a whole community so we ha- I think we have to ask ourselves um, what are those ideas that we're going to lift up to a, a, a favorable administration that includes not only the farmers and rural communities but the teachers that are there uh the one in five uh people in rural America who are persons of color um, policies that include everybody who are currently living in rural communities. And that should be our advocacy
2: focus.
0: I love that. It was really inspired by groups like IOS CCI and people's action that are really also bringing these issues to the forefront and showing people that people in rural America are really organized fast food workers fighting for a livable wage. There's a lot more to rural America than this, kind of stereotype that a lot of people seem to think and there's a lot of potential to revitalize rural America.
2: I've been promoting a, an, an idea on food security or, or addressing the hunger issue talking about community food utilities using the concept of a public utility to provide food security which basically the basic idea, and I'll be very brief on this because I want to go somewhere else, would be to take the current government funds that are allocated for food assistance programs of the SNAP program and and school lunch and various other funds and put those into a rural community. They form like a public utility and anybody that wants to join that utility, then the public funds that would go to them would go into the utility and the utility then would guarantee that everybody has a healthful diet of nutritious food and they have enough to eat in the school. If you transferred that part of the school lunch program that those lunches are nutritious and you could connect that with local farmers that would be producing for as much as possible supplying the local community food utility. I've worked with another guy on the idea of expanding that to a, a community economic utility. So what, what the possibility in a rural community that we could take all of the government funds that are allocated to rural communities for various rural development programs, and rather than spending them as they're being spent now, that they would go to the community economic utility and that those funds would be allocated within a given community based on what the people of those community decided was the best use of those funds. And then they could add to that. What about something of that nature?
1: I I really love that because you know something we... It kind of fits into, uh, it reminds me of, of Matt Russell in Iowa is is always an advocate for empowering rural communities and letting them lead the way on, on, on their development and advocacy because they know best what they need. And to me, that is a policy that um, puts rural Americans in the driver's seat of what they need for their communities. So I think Things like that are very compelling and very relevant today because so much of the rural policy was made at a different time for, for different needs. You know? So going towards that, to me, is a really compelling model to
2: empower these communities. There's, there's sort of an example in the Tennessee Valley Authority. Tennessee Valley Authority was set up you know, along the Tennessee River, but it was basically a high poverty area when it was set up. The primary focus was on generation of electricity. But if you read the Tennessee Valley legislation and the mandate, it has to do with protecting the environment and building the rural community. So they got heavily involved in rural development activities. But this was a federal agency, and I'm thinking you could establish public utilities that would function much like the Tennessee Valley Authority, rather than being a big regional project that supplied electricity and rural development all along the river, It would supply basically there's full range of services within a community The community food utility could be a part of that community economic utility and you could expand that to whatever a community wanted to do and then use the existing government funds as the foundation and then you know you could raise other funds or private funds or you could have local taxes or whatever to add to that so that you ensured that you met your objectives But you already have these sorts of things recognized as being legitimate public services by the fact that we're appropriating public money to support them. It's just like with the farm bill. It isn't doing the job it's supposed to do. So let's give the money to the people in the community and let it provide food security and support local farmers or let it provide local entrepreneurs and support local development and all that sort of stuff.
1: You see, now somebody get Tom Vilsack on the horn. That is just a good idea. Right? <laughs> and it makes me excited about our next podcast guest somehow. yes, <laughs> and, that, and, and
0: working on that public utility would seem like if you can, can be paid a livable wage, that would be a great job for people to sort of build out those projects.
2: And a public utility basically creates a local monopoly that you don't have to buy from the cheapest buyer. You know, you can avoid all the problems with the commerce clause saying you can't keep the big corporations out. If you build a public utility, you can buy from whoever the board of directors say you're going to buy from. And you can deal with whoever the board of directors say you're going to deal from. And the board of directors can all be local people who know what their community needs.
1: Sounds like something you can campaign on to me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Thank you. I'd like to change the subject a little bit. You know, you've talked about impact of the, Concentration corporate power and things of that nature. That was a big part of Elizabeth Warren's campaign. That's a big part of Cory Booker's campaign and Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, working together on legislation in this area. What's the possibility, do you think, that you can get some of this legislation passed or maybe make some significant progress in this area for a change?
1: Well, I uh, am optimistic about that outlook um, because you are hearing uh, antitrust and uh, antitrust enforcement and concern about consolidation coming from both sides of the political aisle. Uh, the problem's just gotten so bad that you know everybody kind of recognizes that it's something to deal with. Um, we have. I, I also am optimistic about this because. Um, you know, it's not a large uh, spending bill. It's not uh, a, a big reform that you have to tack on to the farm bill or something like that. We already have laws on the books, and if we reverse some of the things that the Trump administration did, like uh, defanging the Packers and Stockyards Act and, and making it part of the ag and markets, um, then we can em- empower uh, our regulatory agencies to roll back some of the, you know, the mergers and acquisitions that have just seen. Uh, fewer and fewer companies exert control over both the the input side for farmers and the buying side, right, which which is the whole problem. So I think it's being raised uh, by both sides of the aisle. Uh, You know, advocacy organizations as diverse as RCAF and IOS CCI are championing this. And um, we now have the majority and, and multiple senators who have made it a priority so I'm optimistic and I think we have people pushing from the outside and it it certainly is past time to start enforcement so I'm I'm optimistic about it and I also think that um, it's, uh, it's an issue that it's an issue that's good policy but also good politics so you know fighting back against some of these corporations that have been so extractive to rural communities not only is the right thing to do but I think it's going to help us um, continue to, to to win elections and, and build on that progress. So I, I do hope it happens.
0: So I'm sure the, the groundwork that you laid doing those listening tours was so important for what you just mentioned, because being able to just sit in a room and talk about issues like antitrust and consolidation and and getting kind of being able to come to the same conclusions about that with people is, is really
1: powerful. Yeah, yeah. And... You really—it's when you when you do that—it puts the whole system in perspective, and you kind of run up against some of these arguments that are advanced by industry. It's like, well, you know, we don't like consolidation, uh, but you know, we like cheap food, or we like uh, feeding the world, we like uh, all of the things that consolidation and, and efficiency awards us. But what you find out—and again, I'll point to uh, writers like Austin Friedrich, uh, bacon was uh, cheaper, dollar for dollar, back in uh, you know the era when people owned forty hogs, than it is when a couple companies are, are growing hogs in uh, you know barns that have two thousand four hundred and ninety nine hogs, mind you, to come under the regulation. A, a thing that these these companies like to do. Uh, the point being a lot of the reasons that uh, these consolidated companies give out for their own existence just aren't true. And you hear that uh, when you go out and and, and engage the communities that have to live uh, with the negative effects of these really consolidated companies.
0: Absolutely. And those costs are so often hidden like the cost of, of, of a CAFO polluting your air and in your water. I, we see that too in Hawaii with all these big ag companies have come in and they, before the corn is taken to places like Iowa, all the GMO corn seeds are tested in Hawaii. And so they're spraying a ton of chemicals to make sure that these seeds are resistant. Um, and you just see, you know, 10 times the rate of birth defects and, can, these cancer clusters, but these industries are so powerful and it's hard to make that correlation. And so the same thing in, in places like Iowa where the CAFOs are causing all sorts of illnesses, but it's hard to kind of measure those costs.
1: Uh, you know, one of the, the costs of concentration uh, that you don't often think about, you know, I, I was a, a produce grower on 21 acres, a very small operation, but it was uh, growing uh, food that went into local regional supply chains. When uh, agriculture consolidates and you really have only a couple business models that that industry puts out to you. Oh, you can grow 2,500 hogs in a barn or you can plant, uh, you know, 1,500 acres of uh, Roundup Ready soybeans, right? When those are the only options after years of consolidation, uh, they cut off supply chains that other business models would need. And one of those, uh, as a small produce grower, you know, I needed equipment that is no longer made because nobody, uh, because the consolidation has forced businesses like mine out. And it's also forced out the suppliers who would make specialty produce equipment. So I found myself as a grower uh, calling into Kentucky where they still had 50-year-old tobacco cultivators that I could retrofit to grow. Uh, Melons say, right, but that's an entire supply chain of manufacturing of small, you know, uh, businesses and communities supplying each other that we lose uh, the bigger and bigger um, agriculture gets. So there are all these unforeseen costs that are, are bad for
2: our communities you know i bl- i blame economists for a lot of that i'm a, i am an economist <laughs> <laughs> easy for me to blame economists but people really don't understand but it should be taught as basics within economics it, that in order for this idea you know they say well a free market economy we produce what the consumer wants and we respond to consumer demand the only way a market can respond to consumer demand that you have any confidence that it's actually doing that is if you have a large number of small operations supplying that market. And the reason it is, is if the consumer wants something different, and they may not know, but if somebody has a better idea, then you can't get that idea to the consumer if the market is captured by a few large operations that just do it a single way. Or if consumers actually want something different, as you talk about, and then so they seek out individual farmers through CSAs or farmers markets or things of this nature, then you get down within the system, like you say, and there's no equipment there. there. There's no infrastructure built in that because that whole infrastructure for processing and distribution has been concentrated into the large corporate interest so that there's nobody developing these others. You know, I've talked about the bottleneck is is small scale or, or moderate scale processing, particularly on livestock products and milk and things of that nature. The technology doesn't exist for those. It'd be very easy now with capabilities. You look at what, we're, what all we can put in a cell phone, don't tell me you can't process a hog in anything less than a multi-million dollar year plan. (laughs) But the idea is is once the market is captured by these large operations, the market can't respond to changing consumer demand. The market can't respond to a new idea. In fact, Adam Smith's invisible hand doesn't work when you have this large concentration within industry. And that's a basic principle in economics. There's basically two types of market efficiency or two types of efficiency. And one is the is the operational efficiency. And that's what you get with economies of scale. And that's all the, the antitrust people are looking at. is kind of the economies of scale and can you produce it cheaper? They're gonna put it in cheaper. They're not looking at the fact that if you focus only on operational efficiency, then you lose that coordinative efficiency. You lose that allocative efficiency, the ability of the market to respond to changing consumer needs so that you get the best producers producing the best products that Coomers value the most. So you end up with a lot of cheap stuff, but no assurance you're getting the right stuff.
0: And as a consumer, you might go and withdraw your support from these corporations and you're supporting something smaller and it's probably already bought out by Pepsi or Coke or one of these large companies. And so even if you're trying to do that, you're probably still not supporting who you think you are. I
1: have two points to make about this. So the first is uh, there is a great 30 Rock episode for all of our 30 Rock fans out there, <laughs> uh, just about how Halliburton owns everything, even though it's kind of like, you know, to your point of uh, trying to support these smaller local manufacturers that are bought out by larger companies. But John, your, your, your point is so... Uh, well-stated, and I just wanted to tack on. That is why um, antitrust and reducing consolidation excites me politically, especially from the democratic side of things, is because uh, it is a pro-small business argument. It is a pro-innovation argument. Uh, These large companies are freezing out innovation and small competitors this is more competition, more small businesses. You know, those, those are popular things to run on, but they're also the right policies.
2: It's the free market argument. And back in the old days, whenever I was in school, they taught those kind of things. I, and I trust the regulations since the 1980s make no economic sense whatsoever. If you go back to just basic economic principles, as it should be taught in school, you have to have these competitive markets. We used to talk about structure, conduct and performance. That's the way you evaluated market. Market structure was the number of the size of, of firms and the number of firms that were competing with each other. And market conduct was whether or not the small firms colluded to act like a big firm. And then market performance was the outcome of that. You know, in, in classical economics, then if you had monopoly power, you'd raise the prices and reduce the output what the regulators forgot that when you got large firms competing for market share, they're not going to cut output and necessarily raise the prices. They're going to increase output and reduce prices to drive their competitors out of business. So they said, well, gee, as long as prices are going down we have innovation, we must have performance. So we're not going to worry about structure or conduct. And my argument is you have to worry about structure and conduct. Otherwise the markets don't work the way economists tell you they work.
1: And I I think it's interesting to your point about what they taught in, uh, in, in in economics courses in college. I think it's interesting to look at the industry capture and influence over.
0: Oh, I wanted to do a whole, I would do a whole episode just asking you about what you learned at Cornell. I'm very fascinated (laughs) by that.
1: Yeah. That is one of the places where it's, where it's most obvious. I think, uh, you know, in all of these multi, uh, pronged advocacy things that we've been talking about today. One of the things is we have to look at how the ag industry is influencing our land grant schools.
0: Absolutely, because because extension agents are so important. They're so needed. And and I wanted to ask you when I saw that you were an organic farmer, I was like, how did you come out of Cornell and become an organic farmer? <laughs> I'm so fascinated by that. Because
1: I, yeah. So I. I take this opportunity to defend my dear alma mater. But no, we, we have, uh, it's very interesting. Um, and I think this is probably a dynamic that exists in a lot of uh, land-grant ag departments. Uh, we have a lot of industry influence um, in uh, you know professorships in, in the department and the thought that comes out of it. Um, you know, for example, we had we, at Cornell, we had the person uh, who worked on the gene gun, one of the things that paved the way for GMOs. But we also had the person who um, wrote the paper about destruction of milkweed habitats uh, as a consequence from use of, uh, of GMOs in that growing system. So it was kind of a competing dynamic. The problem is, it's not equal, right? You have to look at the amount of funding and firepower on, on one side of thought and what kind of policy that produces um versus the other more sustainable side which is always in my experience hurting for money so um i hope to see a reversal of those roles pretty soon as we see our policy express more interest in agriculture and rural communities being part of the solution to really big problems like climate change i think there's promise there but we all have to push for
2: it i argue that people need to take back their public institutions and in that what I mean by taking back the example I use, if we go down to the Walmart store and you have $100 and I have 10 you get to buy 10 times as much stuff. But if we go into a, a voting booth and you have $100 and I have 10 we still have the same vote. And the public institution should operate like the voting booth. That's the difference. It's not a market institution. It's there a public institution and everyone should have an equal right to be represented there. The individual organic farmer that's farming not 21 acres, but three acres ought to have as much to say as the president of the CEO of Monsanto when they go into the University of Missouri. And that's the way it ought to be. But I can tell you from firsthand experience at four different land-grant universities, and I saw it change during the 30 years I was there. When we first started out, I think it was still pretty much dedicated to being the people's university. By the time I left 30 years later, I was fighting every day to do the stuff that i Really thought I ought to be doing
1: one of the one of the things that we, we used to say in the Warren campaign all the time is that there isn't there isn't a rural policy. All policy is rural policy because rural communities are a cross section of, of, of everywhere else. And I think this fits in right here because you might not think that the policy of state legislatures underfunding public land grant universities is a uh, is a you know rural or farm issue. But as a direct result of not funding, you know, cutting funding to our public institutions, that has been replaced by, and that's been captured and taken over by industry funding or shifted on to students that are now in student loan debt. I think taking back the public square should happen everywhere, but it should also be a feature of how we talk about these problems in, in rural areas. You know, there is, there is we can have, a- anything is possible when we really realize that that by Uh, The the parties that are fighting right now in the voting booth, if we unite and recognize that we generally all have been exploited by a handful of these companies that are really winning uh, and extracting from rural America, if we band together against them uh, to chart a new path forward, really anything is possible, but it happens at the voting booth. Good part about that is we we have all the tools we need to do it.
0: I think that's a great way to wrap up this episode. And I'm thinking we should get funding for land grants on the Farm Bill 2023 agenda. I think that's a great, great add-on. We love to kind of end our episodes with something specific that you think you can give listeners, something to do, whether that's contacting their public officials or, or something that they can... Go and research or, or do so. If you have anything to kind of share with people, that would be great. Well,
1: I love the uh, pun of cross pollination here. I think uh, listeners, I'm I'm glad that folks can listen to your podcast, and I would recommend if if you're enjoying this, um, I think there are a couple people to that I enjoy uh, reading on these topics. Um, Lisa Held, who writes for Civil Each, just came out with a new an excellent newsletter called Peeled. Uh, I would direct folks to that. Um, some of the folks that I uh, mentioned earlier, uh, definitely check them out. Uh, writers like uh, Charlie Mitchell, he wrote for a couple publications, but The New Republic, um, he's really great. Austin Friedrich as well. And then I want to shout out the organizations. Uh, they have really good resources, especially for political organizing in rural communities ruralorganizing.org, uh, kind of biased there because it work for them. But I think your listeners would appreciate some of the resources.
0: That's awesome. Charlie is a good friend of mine. So me, John and Charlie all worked on that regenerative Memo that John was talking about. And Austin Good worked people. on the, the antitrust one. Yeah, it's a small world of, <laughs> of food people. That's awesome. Yeah, we'll, we have a Facebook page for this podcast and eventually we'll hopefully get a website. So we'll put in all those links that, um, that you said. I didn't know Lisa was making a, a newsletter that's super exciting
2: the hope for the future is you young folks i'm counting on you to carry on okay we'll do it together
0: thank you so much for all your time john it's been great talking with you and we appreciate you taking the time to come on
1: thank you both this has been really great
0: all right that is the end of episode three of agenda 23 thanks for listening